So it's a, it's a quick one, really. Um, you say at the end that this is a rewriting of Kant's second critique. Uh, <laughs> I said everything I think about that. Now I think I'm comfortable. Uh, but it's uh, purely within an imminent system, pure imminence, and therefore there is no moral law. So going back to something you said earlier, you cited the example what remains primary in a society is its lines of light and decoded flows. So the question is, why? If there is no moral law or norm within a system of pure imminence, why should lines of light, decoded flows, be analyzed? Why don't we? What's wrong with just staying the way we are? <laughs> no flows. So that's sort of a normativity question. Yeah, given, given the no moral law line of the pure yeah. imminence line. Yeah, no, that's a good question because various people have asked this and some people would say there's no normativity in Deleuze because there's no transcendent dimension from which you would get a normative position. Um, Paul Patton has an interesting take on this where he would say if, if there is a kind of normativity in Deleuze, it's indeed found at the level of these lines of flight or as Deleuze says at one point, absolute deterritorialization. But that would mean not as a kind of norm or an ideal that is there to be realized or actualized, but the fact that given any any concrete norm that you have, the criterion, the normative criterion is that whatever led to its creation should also be the condition under which it can be criticized and destroyed. Uh, so there's no content to that normativity because you know, for Deleuze, everything is created and, and produced. And so for Coldian point, you have norms and normalizing powers. Uh, but the conditions for their creation have to at the same time be the conditions for their destruction. And if there's a normative principle operating in Deleuze, it would, it would be that, rather than certainly not any content to a normative uh, sort of criterion. But I guess that might be a kind of formal principle, although it's not even a principle. Because the, the reason he says lines of flight are at the bottom of things is the same reason he says a general theory of society is a theory of flows. That's not a question of principle. He'd say that that's a question of physics, <laughs> in a way, or a question of materiality. Um, so if it's going to happen anyway, it is, that's at the bottom of things. So I suppose the flip side is, where's the first Here's a line I didn't quote. Uh, the list says, there's no general prescription. Nothing can be known in advance. <laughs> so, and they say in anti-atomism, we have no political program to sketch out because they say politics is not, sorry, uh, politics is not an apodictic science. You know, you don't have certainty experimentation. It's gropings in the dark. So there's no, in that sense, normative political program that they're going to spell out here of the way things should be. I mean, it's really saying we have assemblages, we have concrete social formations. Here are some tools for thinking about them. Uh, the cutting edges of any social formation are its lines of flight. But they don't even say lines of flight are something we should aspire toward because lines of flight have their own destructive potential, like their state formations, codings, 
decodings, capitalism, you know, nomadism, they say, don't think a war machine's going to save us, <laughs> even though it's a system that's set up against the state, which seems to be the repressive structure par excellence, or one of them. Um, so nothing's given in advance. That's <laughs> Well, yeah, that's a good question, too. There's one point where Deleuze, I think Isabel Stengers takes this up um, somewhere, I'm not sure I had it in my notes here, but where Deleuze says the difference between the left and the right is not a difference that's there along a continuum. He says it's a fundamental difference in nature. Because the right is, by definition, associated you know, with law and order, with the uh, you know, structures that be, whereas uh, the left is precisely at these at the level of problems that aren't resolved. It's not the way things are, and therefore it requires thinking. It requires working through these problems, which is not clear. Nothing is known in advance, so there's not always the same kind of unity because you're at the level of problems, and you need to think, and you don't just fall back on these solutions that we already have and that we want to preserve and maintain and control. So if there's a difference between the left and the right, that's one way of thinking about it, and that's why they would be on the left. And there's a point where Deleuze is just complaining in France about uh, the educational system and some reforms that were being done. He goes, you can't even get you know, the numbers of how many students are doing X, Y, and Z at these universities because there's no, you know, it's a right-wing government. There's no functionaries out there like garnering the information you could get to resolve the problem because they're just not interested in that. <laughs> and he said it's just kind of on the ground problematizing is where the left is sort of on its own rather than the right.
Can you say more about it? How, how, does, how does it work? I mean, I, the question would be maybe can you do an analysis of it using the war machine? That's what I would be curious about. Given the concrete reality, would there be a mutation in the concept? I think that's how you'd have to look at it from Deleuze's point of view that would incorporate this. I mean, I don't know. Because there's actually, where's Emery? He sort of pointed this out. The whole second part of the nomadology is actually about, you know, seems sort of bizarre, but on metallurgy, uh, which is you know, essentially the basis of technology, but that has to do with mines and how one accesses you know, the mines and gets ore out of the earth. And 
that almost constitutes a fifth social formation when it comes down because it has such a specificity that they're going to analyze. And they talk about migrants, which are different from nomads, which are different from metallurgists. So you could just, the problem is you can just start multiplying the types, I think, and uh, add infinite. Like thinking about the secret societies, they do talk about secret societies and how they function in primitive societies because you'd have societies you'd have to get initiated into that are often associated with a certain you know, organ or a certain function. Uh, they do talk in the war machine section about um, once you have this numerical organization, you nonetheless select from it a certain group that is around Genghis Khan or it's around Moses, like the Levites in the, uh, in the Old Testament, which have a kind of esprit de corps. You know, there's a specificity to that kind of social, collective social body that's maybe different than secret societies as they exist in primitive societies. So they do these sorts of analyses of these small formations in various primitive societies and the war machine. I don't know how to think of that in response to the you know, more contemporary formations that you're um, mentioning, except to say, just trying to think of it from everything they outlined. The question, again, would be how it relates to these various formations they've laid out and what mutations take place. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure what more, much more to say about it. Pierre Klosowski, actually, in his book on Nietzsche, has a long section on conspiracy <laughs> and how that, you know, how that functions you know, the conspiracy of one class against itself. But yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure how much more I can speculate on. actually a really good question because sometimes I think he, it's, he finds these partly in history, but from the whole presentation of the, um, the war machine in terms of occupation of space, a lot of what he's getting there comes from mathematics because that's where the distinction between dimensional and directional comes and point, line, space. These are all mathematical notions. And we've long ago gotten rid of you know, Euclidean geometry. And once you get into non-Euclidean geometry and Riemannian geometries, you have space to end dimensions and striae. Everything looks, before it looks very simple compared now to what math is capable of doing. Uh, so the broad answer would be yes, you can go to other places besides um, history. And in fact, I think uh, Deleuze does. In fact, to such a degree that it becomes a pain in the neck because he's just, He's just drawing from everything he can find and putting it together in what he calls this combined formation. For instance, the stuff on the code, which I, comes from, coming from the genetic code, and he thinks at some level that's an exact parallel. Social reproduction happens in the same way as biological reproduction does. So what molecular 
biologists have discovered with regard to the genetic code happens in societies. And he just sort of presumes that, says that quickly, and then his whole notion of code is partly indexed on that. But at the same time, he says, well, who's the great discoverer of codes? But it's Jacques Lacan and his notion of signifying chains and the symbolic. And suddenly you have molecular biology and Lacan uh, in two lines functioning together somehow. And that's it's a great thing about Deleuze and what makes him very difficult to read because this, you have to ask the same question about anti-Oedipus. It's almost like, like, what does it mean, but how does it function? Like, how can you put molecular biology and the con together in talking about um, coding? Or how can you put Riemannian geometry together with Genghis Khan and say, this is the structure of the war machine? But that effectively is what he, he does. And he's very explicit about that. Philosophy has its own specificity. He defines it as the creation of concepts. So everything he does is philosophical. He's not doing molecular biology or history or math. But he can use these other domains, steal a concept from them, and then use it uh, philosophically in his own way. So he says, I'm only ever doing philosophy, but I can, I can use these um, for my own philosophical activity. So there's no scientific pretension. If you take something out of science to say this is somehow scientifically grounded, it's, it's transformed into a philosophical concept. So I think it's a great thing and a difficult thing about Deleuze. is schizophrenia. Well, that's simply this, you know, the internal tendency, the limit toward which capitalism, you know, is going with all its strength, but in order to prevent itself from giving to that limit, it's constantly recoding and preventing uh, us from getting there. Um, so they have, it's the same sort of question. There's no prescription. There's no sense that 
capitalism is going to fall apart and there's going to be a communist phase afterward. There's no dialectic like that, nor, do, nor would they ever point to anything internal to the system that's going to predict ahead of time where it's going to go. That, it's not to say something's not going to happen, but that's why they say experimentation is the way to go. You know, the bottom line is lines of flight. Capitalism is fleeing from itself at all times. You know, things are constantly getting decoding. You just simply cannot say in advance um, where things are going to go. How they get... You know, this idea of the axiomatic, when they say this is, we mean this literally. Um, you know, this is what Badiou picks up on, in, but in a very different way. There are limits in any formal system of what can be axiomatized. At the bottom, you have, like, undecidable propositions. You, know, you can't decide if this statement belongs to this formalizable system or not. That sort of girl was working. And then at the top, you have the continuum, which is a power of an infinite set that also cannot be axiomatized. And Paul Cohen did stuff with that. So, by its very nature, axiomatics can't control everything. Like, there are things that lay outside the power of an axiomatic by definition. And that's true for Deleuze in, in the social axiomatic. And from this point of view, minorities are undecidable propositions. Right? They're not in or out necessarily, they're just, they're undecidable as of yet. That's the tension. Can you find the axiom to bring them in, decide the statement, or are they left out of the axiomatic? And then the problem with the continuum is, you know, something close to this war machine that conquers, you know, the entire planet. It's just something not controllable by states, and maybe even by capital itself. So they take this, these problematics of the axiomatic and, and see them literally functioning within capitalism. It has an axiomatic, but by the very nature of axiomatics, they're things that lie outside of its control. But that outside is never some other to capitalism that we're going to eventually get to. It, there are limits functioning within capitalism itself in its decoded ways. If you say a state appropriates a war machine and that's in the service of, of uh, capital, military, industrial complex, uh, complexes are war machines in their own way. But that's what I say. There's no, there's no, the war machine, it's not going to save us. <laughs> it's just a specific social formation, which I think you're right. Their main question is it's directed against the state, it's the opposite of the state. It doesn't striate, it doesn't overcode, it doesn't code, it's just defined by this creation of a smooth space, which in and of itself, they say, is, is you know, revolutionary because it's, it's busting apart, you know, the overcoding, striation, stratifications that a, a, a state would produce. Um, but that's it. I mean, that's all it offers. There's really, I don't think anything, there's no global other, you know, no anything else that they're uh, going to offer outside of capitalism. And it's true from their point of view. That's the one universal, is the capitalist market that it sort of encompasses everything. Although the war machine then can become global during the Cold War and, and take on an autonomy, even if it's supported by capital, you know, has a specificity of its own, I think they would say. Is that answering your question? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
through multitude and and warmership, right? Uh, yeah, because I know that's heart and negri, you know, pick up on the notion of the multitude, of course, from um, Spinoza. I just, I suspect Deleuze would not have picked up that notion in that way, because he certainly has a notion of multiplicity, but inherent in any multiplicity, if you want to think in terms of the multitude, the I forget how they catch it. There's a distinction. Be- well, it's the distinction between the molecular and the molar. So at the molar level, you have, you know, crowds, I think is the term they use. But at a molecular level, every crowd is also made up of its own, you know, packs and molecular populations. And to analyze, you know, any multitude per se, there's always this other dimension. It's the whole thing about desiring machines. So you can't simply have a notion of Multitude. It's also a distinction they make between subjected groups and subject groups, which is something that comes out of Sartre's uh, critique of dialectical and reason that they uh, pick up on. So you, I think you just have to introduce a lot of distinctions into the notion of multitude that I'm not sure Hart <laughs> Negri uh, always do. Um, and also, about Spinoza, it's true they don't use a lot of him in like anti-Oedipus, although the problem that lies at the center of the book comes from Spinoza. How does desire, desire, why does desire desire its own repression? And there's also a point where they say the body without organs is somewhat Spinoza. It's like substance. <laughs> and the organs are like the attributes of substance, an infinity of attributes really distinct from each other, and yet they constitute the reality of God as substance or nature as substance. Apart from that, you know, it's, it's rather passing references. But yeah, I think I think that'd be an interesting study, the difference between the notion of multitude developed by Hart and Negri and the, the concept of multiplicity they have and how they work it out. They're similar, but they're slightly different. I think it's partly because Negri wants, you know, he wants to preserve labor above all, because that means, you know, it comes back to the, the subject, the worker. Uh, everything in capitalism is derived from that. And I don't think Deleuze quite goes that route entirely. You know, capital at a certain point becomes autonomous and money begets money, even though in the end its source is labor. Um, there is a point where it just goes off on its own, and Negri doesn't want to allow that to happen, I think, for his own you know, reasons, and for good reasons, maybe. Uh, but there are perhaps more normative reasons than reality, I think. Yeah, so it's a good question because they're obviously working out of capitalism and schizophrenia, but in their own way. Thank you. 
Yeah, thanks. That's that's absolutely right. And um, that would be, I guess, sort of the way of the ethical dimension of this social political philosophy here that's developing. Um, Spinoza, which raised a whole other issue of this sort of imminent politics, what's the imminent ethics that goes along with it? And from you know, Deleuze's point of view, you define an imminent mode of existence in terms of its, in Spinoza affects, its passivity and activity, and his imminent criterion is to gain active affects. And that's strictly correlative, it seems to me, and just expanding on what you correctly say, is this question of how can desire, desire desire its own repression? That's simply another way of asking that same that same question. You know, ethically, we can desire our own repression, and these political structures are the structures that repress, but that are produced by desire. So it's desire desiring its own repress, repression and repressing itself. So if there's a normative dimension, it would perhaps be, you know, to become uh, active in, in that way, certainly, ethically. But it's hard to translate that completely into these, as far as I can see, and maybe you could tell me, like, well, here's the way to do it, given these political, uh, um, the political layout he's given, because there's no necessary connection between becoming active and, say, being in a nomadic structure or a state structure or, you know, dealing with your, your capital. There's no, these are all processes, and they're not states, and there's no point you can say, this is where you're going to become active if you just become a nomad or something like that. Not completely divorced from the past, but 
the production of something new. So that's maybe another way of parsing it out in addition to the uh, spinocystic route. But you know this is one thing. historical term yet? Okay. Yeah, that's a good question that I've thought about and I've been asked and students ask and I don't, I can't ident identify a movement offhand that I could think of that would function that way. I can say this about the Francis Bacon book though, which might be a way of getting at it, is that it's structured, it, it approaches Bacon's work in exactly the same way everything in this book happens. It's not, what does anything mean? He never says, what do these mean? It's not like it's an expression of modern angst you know, or the violence of the world. It's simply, how do the paintings function? And he just starts off by saying, you have a canvas, and then you have these figures, and you have a monochromatic backgrounds, and then there seem to be contours around the figure, and then the color gets arranged this way, and then he does this with the, uh, the figures, he just asked that question all the way through. Look at Bacon's paintings, their machines, how do they function? He never once says these things mean anything. He just adds one layer upon another of how the machines are functioning and makes it ever more complex as he, as he goes along. Which would mean that even an over or even a single painting of Bacon's is like a social formation. You know, it itself is going to have dimensions of coding, overcoding, and so forth, and lines of flight. You know, there'd be portions of Bacon or any painting where they're just like doing the cliche, and you know, that's how he defines art in some ways. Get away from the cliche. How do you undo the cliche? Um, and then points where you know they're doing something else, which is then one way of saying. I don't say it's a danger to sit. We would give an identity to a literary movement to say this embodies this particular thing exclusively, because I think in the 
not to avoid depression, but you see where I'm going, like in a way Deleuze is saying we're all assemblages. Any artistic formation is going to be an assemblage, and therefore it's going to be a complex tangle of all these lies, lines. We can have the concepts in their purity and talk about this nomadic organization, for example, but they immediately get to the point where they say, and yet from the start, it's co-opted, it's taken up in a state formation, it's, uh, you know, it takes over a state or it gets destroyed by a state, and I think it's true for any any movement. So you could say, maybe we could come up with one, but the minute you come up with one, you say, well, but then they became fascists themselves or overcoating because they were fighting about what, uh, you know, manifesto they should issue, or should we say this, or is this what we're doing, is this what we're not doing, and you're wrong, you're out. You know, those things happen in literary movements. And so the question is not, is this movement necessarily the war machine, but finding within any given movement, where does it, you know, have its own line of flight, where does it overcoat itself, because everything is complex like that. So it's a way, another way of avoiding the question, really. But could, and I think he does without using the term, because um, you could say that 20th century art was trying to get away from uh, representation, and it, he says it did so in two manners, toward abstraction or you know, expressionism, and those are spatial coordinates and spatial categories. You could say a representative painting is a particular organi organization of the space of the canvas. You know, it's a striated space, if you want to like incorporate these terms. And then these two ways of overcoming um, those striations of the space of the canvas, because he's literally thinking of the canvas as a physical system. How does it work? How does it function? How is it organized? One was to go like Jackson Pollock. You want to get rep rid of representation? Well, just you know, drip your painting all over, and then you have this purely abstract line that doesn't is not a contour of anything, so it doesn't represent anything. But the line and color just cover the whole space. Or you go the route of abstraction. You know, with someone like Kandinsky or Mondrian, which is a much more, you know, Kandinsky, it's the spiritual in it, or like the line and color, the way they're organized, have a direct spiritual effect on the, uh, on the viewer. But those are, you know, it's, it's doing, with regard to art, exactly what Deleuze is doing with regard to social formations. They are ways of occupying space and time. And if you look at art or a canvas, you could say, whether well, they're ways of organizing the space of the canvas. And then you'd have to think, and I'm not sure you can do this in the spirit of the moment, like what the, what a war machine type of painting might be, where it's a, a type of space that's not organized. Yeah. 
perfect. Yeah, exactly. Any many more basic level in cinema, Deleuze cites this line by Jean-Luc Godard saying, for a director, the difference between a panorama shot and a tracking shot is a moral decision. <laughs> by which he means, you know, a panorama shot is you, you get the view of the whole, whereas a tracking shot, you know, if I'm filming you looking at me, I just track along here, that's a construction of space. It's a directional vector. So there are just two ways in film of organizing space. Stanley Kubrick famously did lots of tracking shots. That could be a war machine. If you define war machine as a way of occupying space and it's directional rather than dimensional, a panorama gives you the dimensions of this room. A tracking shot is just a directionality through space. Or he cites uh, the movie Pickpocket by Bresson, uh, where he's in the Gare de Lyon and just follows uh, a hand you know, it takes the wallet, but it gets passed on, you know, to another hand, to another hand, and finally gets outside the station. You're seeing how the thieves are working. You never see the station as a whole. You just follow the vector of the wallet as it's being ripped off and then passed along to the buddies. And that's, you could say, a war machine, because that's what the war machine is. It's a way of occupying space and time that's directional uh, and sort of constructs itself as it moves along. So maybe that's you know, one way of answering that. Thank you. 
Entirely. In fact, I think John Kateri and I are having this discussion, like this normal way to approach any philosopher and so the way people approach the list sometimes, like, oh, well, he's saying we should all be schizophrenics or we should become nomads. You know, it's just, you read the terms and it's just what people do. It's just what you expect from, you know, philosophy sometimes at a very, you know, basic level. But, um, yeah, to spin out that metaphysics thing, which I just threw out, threw out on Wednesday, Deleuze does say, uh, he considers himself just a pure metaphysician. So in that sense, he's very non-Heideggerian, non-Deridian. And there's an interview where he says, yeah, I was just one of the most naive philosophers of my generation. But what he means is, uh, look, if the, other, if the old metaphysics is screwed up, then all we need to do is simply construct a new metaphysics. That's where he says, my naivete just was doing a, a new metaphysics. But he sort of says it that tongue-in-cheek because, you know, when you get down for him saying, well, what then is the nature of reality if you're doing metaphysics? Uh, well, he says the nature of reality is, you know, being is different. So we say, like, the nature of things is that they are problematic, which is another way of saying we don't actually know <laughs> the nature of reality, but it poses a problem to us. And it's out of that problematic space that we form our concepts, that we form knowledge. So what's the nature of reality? It's problematic and problematizing. He makes this point with regard to the question of truth. Like he asked that uh, Platonic question, who is it that seeks after truth? What is it that gets us to start searching for the truth? And he's Christian on this, he's critical of Plato. It's not friends sitting together with Socrates, having conversations, having dialogues, submitting themselves to the reality of the idea that they're going to ascend to in their dialogue. We don't ascend to the truth out of a kind of goodwill or our voluntary nature. The better model for the person seeking after truth instead of friends in conversation, as Prue says, is the jealous lover. Because the jealous lover finds the unexpected underwear in the room or whatever, and that's the lived reality of a problem. And it's involuntary. And at that point, the person finds itself in, or herself in the midst of a problem that they are involuntarily compelled to resolve. And the truth always arises as a result of that confrontation with a problem, and that problem is always ontological. Einstein said something different, uh, similar about uh, how he got to the theory of relativity. He was just sitting somewhere, imagining a clock, looking at a clock and imagining the light coming off of it. And it's at 3 o'clock, and it occurred to him, the light coming off that clock, that's at 3 o'clock, will always say 3 o'clock. As it continues out into the universe, he says, that was the problem. <laughs> well, that's what got him uh, sort of generating uh, some of his ideas, much more complicated than that. And that's what Deleuze is doing here, I think, uh, politically. It's not, he has a notion of ideas, but ideas are never ideals. Ideas are always problems. That's why you can have schizophrenia as an idea, it's never really given as such. It's a way of defining the problem for which every social formation is a solution. The problem is flows that would be absolutely decoded. Capitalism tends toward that. Myth gives us an image of it. Deleuze can construct an idea of it, but it's a problem. It's not an ideal to work toward. It's a problem to resolve. And that's exactly how he 
think about, we have this tendency with philosophers to think they're giving us an ideal that we're going to strive toward. You should become nomadic, you should become schizophrenic, and Deleuze just inverts it, says no, problems are imminent. Problems are given in experience itself. It's not as in Kant, where they come outside and systematize and totalize. Um, so, that's my reflections on your reflections. <laughs> Thank you, I